You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Now, we even have a fourth person on the show this time because it is the first time around that we're going to speak to an analyst on With a Terrible Fate, who has at least thus far not been on the show. With us here is Max Gorinsky. Yeah, did I pronounce that correctly? You did, and I'm here. God help you all. <laughs> God save the queen of video games. No, it's funny. Um, <laughs> I had to. I had to count this like three times before we started the podcast because I couldn't believe it. But since the inception of With a Terrible Fate, we've actually had seventeen people involved as analysts at, at various times, and they're not all currently active. But wow, I know it's crazy. Um, because I can remember back in my day when it was a little personal blog for me. No, but um, I, I just, it's, it's tremendously humbling that so many people would want to volunteer and contribute their time just to analyze and think about the storytelling of video games. And as I was saying a little bit off mic before we started, Max in many ways is just the absolute paragon of that. Um, it's been about three and a half years, my friend, since you reached out to With a Terrible Fate uh, with a song in your heart and a desire to contribute uh, and think about, well, many things video gaming, but especially Earthbound, and, and so happy to have you involved in what will hopefully be the start of, of many podcasts where we can involve analysts beyond the the three of us, Stefan, Dan, and myself, because we really want to make this a forum where everyone can come and think about video game stories and, and analyze them in a different medium than the long-form content we have on the publication. So welcome, my friend. Yes, sir. What a ride it's been so far. Uh, Thank you very, very much for having me. I'm wondering, just a brief question, because I know we're going to go into the subject uh, in a moment, but Earthbound, right? Mm. Uh, that is a game, I must admit, I had never heard of it before. And I wonder whether that is some kind of weird knowledge gap I have, because I have studied video games and researched video games, but it's the first time I heard it from you, Max. Yeah, so it's it has an interesting or rather as a franchise, if you can call a three-game series a franchise, it's had quite an interesting history, particularly with respect to its localization beyond Japan. So Earthbound is the second game in the series, but it's actually the only one that was ever given, I think, an official dub into English. Um, and as a result of that, and also as a result of uh, Shigesato Itoi, the creator of the game's notoriously and magnificently perverse approach to not only the constitution of the game itself, but most particularly the way that it was publicized, it did not, I suppose, achieve the kind of purchase that a lot of the, I was going to say comparable titles in Nintendo's uh, catalog did at the time, but they would be more accurately described, I guess, as incomparable titles when you think of... It's funny you say that too, Stefan, because uh, my, my gut reaction when you said that was really, but then thinking about it for like two seconds, I was like, no, wait a minute. I, I can actually believe that you wouldn't have heard about it because it is yeah. such a strange, uh, it, it's a strange little game and a strange series and a strange man behind it all, as Max has talked about. <laughs> I think those three sentences or that one complex sentence is essentially what you can boil the entire comprehensive theory down to at this point, where <laughs> it's still more of a sort of spectat a spectatorial thing where we're sort of marveling at this very strange eminence of this singular game that resists so much 
conventional analysis. I think. Well, it's funny, Max, because you know when you first proposed this series that you've been writing for really three years at this point, the comprehensive theory of Earthbound, it was very much following in the footsteps of what I did similarly with Majora's Mask that started with The Terrible Fate, right? And I think I think we talked about it at the time, but there are a lot of similarities between those two games, right? They're these sort of weird anomalies that have seeped their way into many aspects of video game culture, but also not that many people know about them as such. I feel like that's even more accurate in some ways with Earthbound than it is with Majora's Mask, because um, my immediate thought when when you said you hadn't heard of it, Stefan, is I think a lot of people and probably our listeners, even if they haven't played Earthbound, have heard of it through Ness being one of the iconic characters in Super Smash Bros. Or maybe if they've played the much more recent Undertale, hearing you know vaguely in interviews or conversations how Toby Fox you know, in many, many ways drew inspiration for Undertale from Earthbound. Right, so it's it's developed a legacy that in many ways does not directly reference the source material. And so I think that that's one thing that honestly was especially surprising to me as I got to dig into the game with you. I found myself saying time and again, like, wow, wait, all of this stuff is in this game? That I was not aware of how magically weird this original text was that everyone wanted to follow up on in these different ways over the years. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the thing that makes it so ripe for this kind of analysis. Um, and I, I, I think... You know, I think choosing those analytical partners, and when I say analytical partners, I mean the games themselves, it, it, it requires a certain amount of care so that you do justice to both the, the theoretical eminence you try and build in the game itself. But it was most certainly, the, the thing that you've just described is most certainly similar to my experience with it, whereby um, I'd come into into sort of secondary contact with it through all these different... Um, all these different marks that it's left in various unusual places, um, not only within gamedom, but well beyond it as well, um, that then drew me to it. And, and I think allowed its the progressive charm that it weaves over a gamer, whereby you notice the layers of its weirdness gradually, as opposed to many other games that are probably more have a more self-consciously weird artifice um but then don't i suppose beckon the same amount of prolonged thought in it afterwards i think it's the one of the one of the main points that can be made about earthbound was one that we made in the last article which is that the fact of it having enjoyed such an afterlife as it has from a non-franchise title is 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 pretty pretty incredible really i mean there aren't that many guys i can think of that do that maybe chrono trigger is one that springs to mind you know, great sort of pseudo standalone title, obviously not quite because Chrono Cross came afterwards. But Well, I'm very curious to hear more on that. But before, dear listeners, as you know, we have to mention that at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. There are no advertisements, there's no paywall, and instead we rely entirely on on your support. So if you wish to contribute, then please go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Specifically in today's main quest, we're going to talk about uh, the flavor of Earthbound, that its text tastes good. <laughs> it's a very, a very sensuous <laughs> game. It was a very sensuous text. article to read. Max's article that we're going to talk about today was really sensual to read. I agree. 
He's a sensual man, this Max Gorinsky. This is not, this is unprecedented. <laughs> These are unprecedented compliments, ladies and gentlemen. This is not the conventional register of conversations that with a terrible fate, I can assure you, maybe it should be. Max the sensual. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we strive for in all our video game analysts. That was, that was my WWE name. <laughs> it was, it still is. <laughs> Tune in, see him every Sunday. And I retired retired years ago. I love being able to work with all the analysts on With a Terrible Fate. Um, And again, you're the paragon of this, Max, because not only does everyone bring a very different perspective on video game storytelling to the table uh, and think about a wide variety of different games, but also they have such different styles and their approach to how they think and present and analyze. And I think all jokes aside, sensuous is, is a good descriptor of yours. I, I think especially in an article about Earthbound's flavor, you do such an adept job at analyzing while also creating a work that is itself very literary and a joy to read. And, and I think people respond to that. You do a really great job with that. I wanted to ask you, you know, one of my favorite um, pieces of insight that a professor of mine gave me years ago at this point with regard to philosophy is that philosophy is thinking in slow motion. I love that thought. And I think it's a really great descriptor of what you've been up to in Earthbound, given that you've really been working on this series and this one mode of very intensive critical inquiry for over three years at this point. And I wanted to ask you, you know, has that mode of extending the series out over a broad swath of your own life led you to think about the subject matter differently? Do you think about Earthbound now differently than you did when you kicked this off three years ago? Oh, most certainly. I I think in order to give a really in-detail answer to that question, I'd probably have to go through an inventory of everything else that happened to have passed through my ken in the meantime, not to mention all the conversations that you and I have had, and that the, the three of us, you and myself and Dan, have had in our in our, our packs or our single packs adventure so far. But that did, as I'm sure, escape neither of you, um, inform the way that I uh, thought about this article, and I think also puts into rather harsh perspective the amount of gestation time this one required, given that we were having those conversations almost a year ago. But um, I, I think so. The the abiding impression that it's given me as opposed to the, if you like, as opposed to my interest having started as this kind of solid mass that has then been broken apart by the the analysis into a bunch of different um, variegated impressions. It's, it's more been the case with Earthbound that it, it, I think over the course of the analysis, I've come to view it even more as a whole and to be impressed by the way that, as I alluded to earlier, the way that it, resists a lot of these conventional modes of of analysis because i think somewhat unusually um for the kind of work that goes on with a terrible fate i've more or less been using a bunch of different lenses to try and answer the same question about the game in each article to some extent um i mean obviously the things that they've revealed from looking at the way that space is used and interpreted in the game to the way that music is used to looking at the supporting casts and NPCs and now to looking at flavor, they all are very much distinct avenues of appreciation for what this game and what games in general do. 
but they've all been targeted at basically one single question, which is why does Earthbound have this sort of perversely haunting hypnotic effect that it has on its gamership? When I read your articles, I think Max is kenning to something in Earthbound that maybe we won't find out, but he's using all of these different tactics to try to chip away at this enigmatic thing. And I think for for me, that I almost find that your approach to analysis um, is almost... I find that sometimes more intriguing than Earthbound itself because I think, you know, the way that Max approaches this game, I think could be applied to so many enigmatic things. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I recently wrote, I say recently, my last article on uh, a character from Kingdom Hearts 2, um, I kind of was thinking about you while writing it because your, your approach is so specific and I think it's a really great way to tackle these hard questions. That's very, very kind. And I think... Um, I extremely gratifying for me to hear as well on account of the fact that that is uh self-consciously or not more or less exactly what i've been um gunning for i think owing to the fact that of course this this series more than it was inspired by anything else and i i i think it's probably accurate to say more even than it was directly inspired by earthbound itself earthbound just happened to be an absolutely fabulous like launching pad. Yeah, I'm sure I was going to use. I was going to say substrate, and I was going to say I'm sure it's a much, much more appropriate word to use than substrate. But you, um, you know, I'm sure you guys have done some uh, some sort of light high school biology. You know what I'm talking about when I say that. Was Aaron's <laughs> original theory with um, Majora's Mask, and I think um, the the systematizing approach with that uh, was when I say more amply repaid by the source material than. I think there are lines of lines of theme and the way that they interact in, in Majora's Mask are, I'd say, slightly more deliberate and more deliberately elaborated by the artistic team behind it. I think one of the great things about Earthbound is that it comes as much by the exercise of a, a lot of people's very very fertile and unorthodox imaginations in concert with one another as opposed to a sort of single architectural scheme that builds up to something and i think um as a result it's the, the thing that attracted me to 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 trying to build this theory for earthbound is the same thing that would draw me to building a similar theory where to do so for something that was probably more classically artistic and that again i thought was was one reason why this was so worthwhile in doing owing to the fact that of course um you know gaming is you know absolutely an art form in its own right it's only at the beginning of its of its lifespan we're only starting to recognize the initial limits of the possibilities um and I, I thought that approach would, would pay out handsomely. And I'm very happy to hear that you at least think that it has. Max, your most recent article, like we mentioned, uh, is all about the flavor and specifically the flavor text of Earthbound. And listeners, if you haven't read it yet, I really encourage you to do so. Uh, I think one of the most representative comments that I've seen about it was a user on Reddit uh, with the great username Conscious Pickle. And Conscious Pickle uh called it a cool dive into something that he always took, he or she always took for a quirk in Earthbound, which really captured how I felt about it. Flavor text is the kind of thing that one never really thinks about, but as I, I think you argue really eloquently, can make a big difference, especially perhaps in a game where the 
the essential thematic content is so inscrutable as Earthbound, right? So I, I wonder just as a way into this, and maybe you can share a little of what the article is about, but what inspired you in the first place to focus on this subject area that in so many ways is invisible yet highly influential to the player of Earthbound? I think it was something that more of it interested me just owing to certain other things that were interesting me and in my my secret inner life uh, along the lines of what you were talking about earlier, Aaron, which was thinking about the concept of superfluity itself. Because I think one potential definition of superfluity that you can obviously contest for days, and that's what I think makes it so useful as a potential definition is that which is least useful in the immediate term and what is most useful in the long term. And I mentioned that in the art, in the, in the article rather, um, that these are things that, and when we talk about things that are superfluous elements in society, they tend to be the things that we actually look back on in a historical sense to try and get more of a measure of, of what and who we're looking at, especially when you're, when you're talking about, um, the cultures that have come to us without any kind of literary record um, and you're looking for sculptures and ornaments and personal decorations and, and all those kinds of things and goldsmithery and silversmithery and all those kinds of things that essentially don't actually provide any kind of resource use necessarily but tell you the story of something in ways that are while not as you say not entirely obvious then still very illuminating in a very, very uh, mysterious way. The thing about those objects that you're referencing are that they kind of stick out, they stick in your brain, you know, as things that you remember. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I may be, um, I may be, uh, you know, jumping over your point here, but I think that what you kind of get at with those quirks is that that's almost what draws you back. Absolutely. To that game. Yeah. It's those ineffable, indescribable things that you're like, I need to pin something down there. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there are an awful lot of interactions in Earthbound between um, minor elements, should we say, that, that go on underneath the action overlaid on top, which if you just take it as, as its own measure, that action that's overlaid on top, the quest dynamics and RPG turn-based battles and stuff like that is perfectly conventional and would not exert the kind of effect on you by itself that the game so evidently does for me and for however many dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people that it does. As I say, I've been basically trying to answer the same question about Earthbound through each installment of the series. And it's a question that doesn't really have bounds that are easily verbalizable beyond asking why it is that it exerts the peculiar attraction that it does. And it, I suppose having considered superfluity at length, I thought trying to assess the elements in Earthbound that don't try particularly hard to draw your attention to them, as is often the case in other things when you're trying to get to the essence of them, can be quite productive. I, I think a lot of people, and I'm not saying that this is wrong, it's totally fine to enjoy a game without thinking about it much deeper than just, you know, the amount of thought that you put into it while you were going through it. But I do think like, people kind of write games like Earthbound off as, oh, that's just weird or it's quirky. There's a lot of weird things in it. And you say, well, hang on a minute. The, the weirdness might actually mean something. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the quirks and not just label it weird. I think it's, it's awfully tempting for a lot of people to look at unorthodox things and presume, presume a, a law of randomness about them um, and to enjoy them as such, which, which, 
as you say, is, is perfectly legitimate. And, and I, I don't necessarily think that we should have uh, our analyst brains turned on all the time. I don't think that's necessarily productive. But it seemed to me that the, the volume of that kind of material and the something like a continuity of style with which those things are acquitted or continuity of styles, plural, in the game seemed to suggest that there was some kind of intention behind it, even if it's a, what you might somewhat dangerously call a subconscious intention, which obviously we can never read properly. But where, whatever the root of it is, I, I could I could see it there. And, and as, yeah, as you alluded to, I definitely thought that it was worth digging into. You have this this great uh, introduction to this article, right? Actually, using uh, like an Earthbound stylized text box, saying ninety percent of what is good about Earthbound was designed not to be noticed, right? And, and of course, in the context of this article, you're talking about flavor text, but it, it got me thinking too, especially because one of the first set pieces you introduce with respect to flavor text is the dialogue between the black and white sesame seeds that you meet or you can meet in the desert, right? Which you've, you've spoken about before in the series. And, and it's just this wonderful meditation that you have directed me and, and your many other readers to of, of kind of what is, what is in many regards, I think the opposite of the modern side quest, right? Like it is, it's the most missable thing in the world because these, these are literally just two pixels on the screen. It grains in the, in, in a desert of sand, right? Um, where one merely wants to apologize for the other for having hurt that sesame seed, but literally lacks the agency to do so because it's just a sesame seed in in the desert right and i think about i think about moments like that and this weird kind of ineffable alienation of something like earthbound which seems at once very similar to Majora's Mask, but also very different because you're right, Majora's Mask similarly has so many side quests, but even though they're missable, they're also intrinsic to the game, right? Like a big part of what you understand to be going on in Majora's Mask is the opportunity to find and help all of these people. In Earthbound, it's just all of this, as you say, content that seems almost designed not to be noticed, Right. And so I, I find that really interesting. And I wonder whether as you were developing this article, you thought about that, whether this lens into flavor text can give us a, a new thematic conception of why all of this stuff that is so essential to Earthbound is actually, you know, in a paradoxical way, inessential to what it is to experience the game. Yeah, I think the I think the comparison with Majora's Mask is is telling in this instance because, and I know this is another thing that that was mooted as a discussion point for today is is whether or not the idea of the side the subplot or the side quest itself can be considered superfluous. I think the really interesting component as far as Majora goes is the notebook because that's the work of superfluity that grounds everything else that happens in in the game beyond um the principal quest to defeat majora itself itself which seems pretty trifling i think by comparison when you think of the, the combined weight of all of those uh, what you might call detours um if if we were looking at it in a in a more sort of casual way um and i think uh, this this is this is one of the reasons why I, I, I was so interested at pushing and pulling at this idea of superfluity to begin with, because it, it's it's obviously we're obviously led to think by the word itself 
of superfluity in contrast with utility. Um, and I think it is itself very, I, I don't actually know the exact etymology of the word, but I think it's it comes from a certain mindset that is conditioned towards um, multiple incremental rewards, um, value understood in the short term or, or understood as regards what can be gained in the short term, um, and with less of an active concern about what um, cannot necessarily be taken out of something in the longer term. And that obviously underpins the way that games, including Earthbound, are set out and including Majora's Mask as well. But I think that's one of the things that really has opened up not only my conception of this game, but my conceptions of games overall, which is that these games are as much about the exercise of of uh, theme on the imagination and theme and image and, and event and all those kinds of things on the imagination of the player after they've finished as as much as it is about what's happening in the game when the player is actually in the midst of playing because i think it's a it's a presumption we very often extend is or think is true of uh more classical art forms in terms of judging their worth based on their ability to snare the mind over a longer period of time than it takes to uh, look at them if they're a painting or a sculpture or read it if it's a treatise or a novel or an essay or a play or whatever and yet it's something that we still don't think of very much, I think, with regard to the state of gaming, despite the fact that it is uh, ostensibly one of the main things by which we we judge art to be effective or not. And that's, it's very true, I think, of, of Majora because the side quests are grounded in that single superfluity that gives those side quests more of a moral imperative and an importance for the gamer and, and obviously in, in the in-game universe as well and the fact that you have episodes in Earthbound like the Sesame episode that um, that lay with you for a long time afterwards uh, and I think were probably intended to one way or the other for one reason or another whether it was intended for comic effect or tragic effect or tragic comic effect I don't know but it surely has both It contributes to the sort of just general esoteric feel of the game where you're it speaks to something else that's going on where uh, you may not get something for talking to the, the sesame seeds, right? But not like an item in the game, I mean, but it sticks with you regardless. Yeah, that's right. Exactly what you just said, Dan, was part of what has my gears turning about this notion of, of superfluity in games, right? Because I think one way in which that concept is different for something like a game versus something like a film or a novel is that the game element of a video game makes players especially players in the modern world expect some kind of functional outcome or reward for the time that they spend on various quests or content within a game right and so i think it's interesting to see that content um that doesn't obviously convey those rewards and ask the question, well, okay, why is that here? Or what is the impact of that? Where often, especially in these more literary and classical games, the outcome can be much more impactful in some cases than, you know, simply getting an item. It's, it's something that actually has, as, as you've argued in this and other articles, you know, pathos and an impact on the player, right? Uh, in something like Majora's Mask, right? You have all these side quests that reward you with masks, but then when you confront the moon children at the end of the game, you have to give all those masks up and it raises the question, well, what was really the, the net value of having 
done all these side quests and help all these people. And even it's even more immediate, I think, in Earthbound with something like the Sesame Seeds, where there is is nothing beyond the act of finding and choosing to do this. And I think that's really interesting, especially in a world nowadays where, you know, you, you talk about kind of modern trends towards thinking about what is um, like immersive or or graphically high fidelity in games. And I think there's a, a similarly themed trend in terms of trying to create as many quests as possible that offer, you know, rewards in game, but are, you know, ironically all the more superficial in terms of their narrative import by virtue of that. All JRPGs, all RPGs, if you if you kind of click on things or if you try to read like in-universe books or something, it may give you some information. Mm. And Earthbound is very tongue-in-cheek with that information. Um, and there's a lot of uh, things that I think they stick with you. And then as you kind of go on to say in your article, they make some of the final interactions with the, the terrifying final boss even more haunting just because of the way that flavor text has been presented to you prior to this. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to just kind of pick your brain about that. Like why, why in particular do you think that, that turnaround is so effective the way that this part of the world is presented to you and then kind of you have, you have the rug ripped out from under you in that final boss. I think the cumulative effect of, having absorbed all that flavor and then it going into some sort of subconscious melting pot along with the uh, sensory overload and emotional overload indeed of the, of the final fight is probably something that's going to gain a, a unique purchase in adults who play this game or people who have played it as a kid and who have then either recalled it as adults or, or replayed it is because you're absolutely correct that a lot of those things are presented tongue-in-cheek and it's that which saves the content of a lot of what is actually expressed from becoming melodrama because there is obviously far from a shortage of video games that deal with apocalyptic circumstances or things that are of moral good and evil stakes that are way above what any any person playing them is ever likely to experience or that anyone ever could experience in some cases where you know magic is heavily involved and there is a particular kind of impact that those games exert that is abstracted away from us now we live in a world where it is as much often the case and unfortunately however often it is the case it is always the case or almost always the case that we re-realize the import of these things later, that where, when people have very, very heavy loads to bear, they will often, I, I suppose this is going to be very culturally relative, but people who have very heavy loads to bear will either do so in silence or they will attempt to disperse the negative feeling through a kind of comic, a comic means, you know, through and a joke. Gallows humor. Precisely. And I think that that is what makes those expressions more convincing in a way that really then carries a lot of currency over the in the long term through through earthbound if you think if you think of this situation liar exaggerates house at the beginning of the game i mean it's one of those things i think the game encourages you intentionally or not to think of it in a bunch of different ways first it's an absolutely atrocious pun and then it's <laughs> It's something that you think is going to. It's something you think is going to correspond to some sort of treasure hunter trope in RPG gaming, and then it's something much sadder or or much more 
uh, destitute seeming at first. And there are an awful lot of situations like that. Everdread is another situation, obviously the situation with Pokey's family also corresponds to this. And there are lots of examples of this sprinkled all through the game. And they then, I think, cumulatively catch up with you through those closing stages of the game when you understand what it really means for this otherworldly abomination to have exerted an effect on the inhabitants of planet Earth and Eagle Land that is supposedly emotional, primarily. Um, and I think that's the thing that grounds it in realistic concerns and prevents it it prevents it from from striking us melodramatically because it's got that certain subtlety to it. And I think it's also one of the things that makes it both makes it both haunting in a way for younger gamers as well, in, in the way that younger younger people, children are often attuned to discords in their in their immediate environment or in their family home without understanding the nature or the driving cause of those things. And it will obviously then resonate in another way entirely for adults who are accustomed to understanding those kinds of things and where they come from and the way that people hide from them. You bring this up in the article. Another great thing that I love about you know, how you highlight kind of the interpretive layer that the flavor text adds to what's going on in the game is it reminds the player all the time these are kids, right? Ness and his friends are kids going through this journey in a way that it's so easy to forget Link is a kid in Majora's Mask. It is always in your face in this game that, you know, Ness can't stop crying. He misses home. There are all of these elements that as all these very adult and unsettling and alienating things are happening, you have this distance from it that's established by this narrative voice of the flavor text you so deftly highlight that allows you as the player to remain an adult or whatever your age and perspective is while also looking in on Ness and realizing these are kids. And I think the the point that that you highlighted in terms of the fight with Gygus that I just love in that regard is, is you know, you, you talk about it as eldritch. And I think especially in this day and age of horror gaming, right, it's, it's so easy and you see garbage like this online all the time that just kind of slaps the Lovecraft label on anything without a lot of thought, right? But I think it's it's exactly this kind of flavor text that lets Earthbound, it seems, go beyond that, right? Where it's not just the horror of that which cannot be known, but it's the horror of that which, like, kids have to face but can't understand, Right. And I don't even know if this was a conscious decision on your part, because we, we didn't talk about it when you were writing your article. But the fact that you discussed the status ailment of Ness being, you know, unable to stop crying and then transitioned into what it is for Gygus to be saying, it hurts, it hurts. Right. Like it, it drew this really like unexpected and scary parallel that I hadn't thought about between those kids and what they experienced throughout the course of Earthbound and Gygus, this like unknowable, but very intimately human horror that you have to face at the end. In, in, in a lot of respects, Kids expect to defeat. They expect to defeat Ganem. You know, they expect to defeat the Stealthos and the, and the, and they expect to defeat Skull Kid because those are the bound, the accepted bounds of possibility within those sorts of realms. The thing that you are not expected to have anything to do with, and that you are under, you are made tacitly, I think, to understand, or at least having grown up when we've grown up, to understand that you are not only incapable of 
as you say, not only incapable of doing anything about, but incapable of, under, of understanding is thugs on the street and, uh, you know, uh, weapons. And I mean, the, 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 the honey trap moment in Threed, I still think is one of the most under, I don't even know if analyzing it would necessarily be, would necessarily be fruitful, but it's most certainly something that shows you how extraordinarily bold this game was in, in taking certain risks. Um, if, if from either from just an imagistic point of view or whether or not it was trying to make a larger statement with it, I don't know, maybe, maybe we could sort of put a, a scaffold up for that. But these are the things yeah. that you are not expected to be able to deal with. You're not expected to be able to understand economics. You're not expected to walk around a big city by yourself. Zombies, again, you can, you can justify that as being somewhat more in the <laughs> childly domain. But then again, because you've had these other things that are more familiar and therefore bizarrely more threatening, these things gain more purchase. And you've had so much of that conditioning by the time that you get to the end that this... Uh, this villain that surpasses all other fantasy then strikes an entirely different chord, not not least because of the, the flavor hues in it that we spoke about in the article. I think it points to a feeling that is, um, it's very hard to describe. And I think Earthbound is such a, a beautiful example of that kind of, that that loneliness that you felt as a child where you it was loneliness coupled with partial knowledge of the world where you were sort of starting to realize that maybe people other each other and, you know, not everything works out. You don't always beat Ganon, you know? And I think that it's funny to think of like, uh, you know, your, the two of you, your work is almost like this Ouroboros like pipeline kind of feeding into each other because I think of Majora's Mask as kind of like the first taste of that for a lot of kids where you get to the end and you think, well, Skull Kid's not a bad person. He's just sad. And I think likewise in Earthbound, it's sort of like, well, let's complicate that a little bit. Where's that sadness coming from? What does it really mean to be lonely? And I think that I, I will always read your work, Max, because it always takes me back to a, a point in my life where I think, okay, let's examine why games like Earthbound like, spoke to me. That was, that's very sweet of you. That's very well, sweet of you. I hope I, I, I hope I will always read my work as well. But, uh, it's yet to be seen. We'll see where we take the series from here on out. Well, I'm sure I speak for all of us, yeah, and I say we're, we're really looking forward to that. Well, then I would say thank you very much, uh, Max, for your time again. Um, and uh, I would say the rest of us will say bye to Max now and head on to our side quests, right? Yes. Sounds like a plan. Thanks again, Max. Bye, Max. Thanks, guys. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about really anything that's going on in video game culture and that's on our minds or intrigues, intrigues us for some reason. And I've brought an article titled Nintendo Switch OLED Model will go on sale October 8th for $350. It's written by Tom Warren on TheVerge.com and the title pretty much summarizes everything <laughs> about this article. So maybe to, to give a little bit more information, um, me and many others have been waiting eagerly for something like a Switch Pro announcement. And Nintendo has announced, well, something now. It is the Nintendo Switch OLED model. It's primarily a screen upgrade, so it brings the screen up to 7-inch. That's slightly bigger 
than the screen on the standard version, although the console itself will remain at the same size. The resolution, however, remains unchanged. It's a 720p in handheld mode and 180p in docked mode. There will not be any 4K support. And it gets a storage upgrade. So the previous uh, Nintendo Switch version was at 32 gigabytes, which is considerably small already. And uh, now the uh, OLED version will have a 64 gigabytes. It will also have a flexible stand on the back, so you can tilt the viewing angle a little bit more, and a redesigned dock, which I at least consider to be relatively pretty. It has uh, a little bit rounder edges, it comes in black and white, and it has a full compatibility with the previous Switch model. And as Nintendo specifically confirmed to TheVerge.com, which is why I also brought this article, is that there will not be any uh, computational upgrade. There will not be any substantial hardware upgrade as one might expect from something like a new uh, Switch model. Again, it will release on October 8th and the price tag will be $350. So this is, I think, roughly in the range of the price of the current Switch model, right? I think it's about 50 more. The Switch, um, the uh, the console version of the Switch, not the Switch Lite, goes for 300 US, I think. Does this satisfy... Um, expectations that you potentially may have had? I mean, I think uh, this strikes me as... Um, a very suggestive question. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this strikes me as... Uh, um, remember when, you know, like the 3DS XL was released? Um, it feels kind of similar to me where they're they're trying to keep the Switch in the rotation of consoles without having to do a major, like you said, computational kind of hardware upgrade to it. Um, I think my, my initial reaction after reading that article was I'm more excited for the adjustable stand <laughs> than I am the OLED screen. <laughs> so listen, I, the, the side quests on this podcast have such a weird way of having me take stances that are contrary to what I usually say, because you guys know, I, I'm usually the first to harp on like, well, gra graphics don't make a fucking difference. Like blah, blah, blah. Immersiveness is garbage. Don't, don't talk about games that way and i'll die on all those hills but <laughs> with, with those caveats in mind um <laughs> i i will say uh you know i i own an oled tv um and i think it is it's it's really cool in a way that if you like if this is the first time you're hearing about oled or oled technology and you're just seeing like the videos that nintendo is putting out and, and watching them on your screen you will not be able to see or do justice to like how cool this tech is um so i'm, I'm not a techie i can't do like a really great explanation of this but but to give a very basic summary the the acronym oled stands for organic light emitting diode and what that basically means is that rather than traditional LED technology where, you know, colors and lights are emitted against a backlight, uh, these, um, these light emitting diodes are just able to um, like intrinsically emit light. The upshot of that being that especially when you have darker colors or black on the screen, the diodes can be essentially turned off. Right, which allows there to be a lot more nuance in the darker colors um, in games or movies or anything that you're watching versus something like an LED. So I will say, as someone who does not care very much about graphics, especially when it comes to gaming, it is really cool technology. Um, now that said, right, I think at least for you know someone gaming on consoles, uh, if if you care about that kind of tech. 
I would imagine that you already have an OLED TV like me. And so then I do wonder like the extent to which having an OLED on the small portable screen will make that much of a difference. I think the the bigger thing for me that was kind of cool and, and, you know, this is just part of the like Switch Pro narrative that already existed before this was announced, but it's cool for Nintendo to be kind of like keeping up with the next generation of consoles in a way that also puts a stake in the ground and says like, you know, the switch is what we're doing and this is where we're focusing our efforts and we're not going to move on to the next thing. That, that was cool for me to see. I must say I do very much have an affinity towards OLED as well. I do have an OLED TV and you guys are lucky. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it costs a bit cool. more money, but honestly, it's it's something that once you've seen it, once you've seen like a 4K OLED TV, it's hard to really go back to an you know to an LCD technology or something of the sort. Yeah. But uh, the the PS Vita, I think, also had an OLED screen, and the new at least the new iPhone generations also have an OLED screen. So I think OLED is becoming more and more prominent. Even the new iPad, I think, uh, has that as a special feature. Um, so I am very much in favor of that, and I think it's going to become like the default uh, Switch model, right? That's that's what I see happening, that the normal Switch will slowly cease production and the uh, OLED model will become uh, the, the default one. At the same time, though, I'm, I can't help but feel just a slight bit disappointed, which is why my my question was also so suggestive, because I <laughs> I think that it is, like Nintendo doesn't, compete in the arms race for you know graphics and technology it's nowhere near the switch even the OLED model is nowhere near the technological power of a ps5 or an xbox one x still i think it would have deserved an upgrade to a 4k resolution in docked mode just because i feel like it's the more future-proof way to go and how beautiful it would would have been a uh, uh, Breath of the Wild 2 in 4K, but well, yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's the Nintendo way to go. It, it is. I think you're you're absolutely right. It's decidedly Nintendo. Um, uh, where I think when it comes to Nintendo and hardware decisions, it does kind of feel like it, that seems like one step forward very slowly. But then I start thinking, well. Do Nintendo games really, because of their style, do they really require a huge hardware update? And I think, I don't know, where, where we are right now with Breath of the Wild kind of being the benchmark, I don't know how much nicer you make a Nintendo game look than that, you know? So if you don't need, if you don't need uh, more intense hardware to do that, maybe you just do these small steps and make the uh, the portable experience nicer with the OLED technology. Well, I think you can. I think you can make Breath of the Wild look much nicer because one problem oh, with Breath 4K. of the Wild... Yeah, <laughs> one thing that Breath of the Wild, one problem that it has, and I think that's why I'm looking for more computational power rather than a resolution upgrade, is drawing distance, for example. That's something that is... I, I love Breath of the Wild. I don't want to say anything negative about that game because I really love it. But a problem is that when you walk through the open world of Breath of the Wild, it you... I quick, I, to, I at least quickly get the feeling that I'm under sort of a glass bowl, you know, and mm. everything appears just like directly in front of me. So I think there is, especially with these uh, showcase Nintendo titles, there's definitely room for uh, to to harness more technological power. But it's, I guess it's not the core audience that they're going for. I think that's the heart of it. Is just it's not the uh, you're not talking about the same crowd as 
the PS5 or the Xbox Series X crowd, right? I think that's just where we land at the end of it. So it's neat. And hey, I mean, uh, I'm probably going to get it because I want to have the, <laughs> the Switch that is, you know, nice and new and runs things nicely. And um, I don't know, maybe the maybe the newer generation Joy-Cons won't have that drift issue anymore. We can hope, <laughs> right? I also think that, you know, at least from the perspective of someone who merely buys what Nintendo pedals uh and and plays games on them there really does seem to be a clear narrative of them experimenting and doing really radical things with hardware in order to arrive at the switch from the wii to the wii u to you know the the switch that seems to really have been what they were going for with both of those other generations so i mean granted those other earlier ones got hardware updates too but if this is the start of nintendo just hunkering down and saying like, well, we're going to just make gradual improvements on the switch and who knows, maybe the next one will have 4k or less drift in joy cons or, uh, you know, one of the features of my OLED that I think is really cool is it has like AI tech to actually like upscale the graphical quality of older shows. So maybe they could do something like that too. Like, cause I, I think, you know, they, they did the hard work with, with figuring out how to optimize hardware for both you know, console sitting at a TV and mobile gaming. And that's really cool. So to be able to just dig into that and gradually improve it, I, I would be satisfied with that as well. I'd so love to see a Nintendo showcase where they present a new generation of Joy-Cons with the main feature that it doesn't have drift issue. <laughs> like a 20 minute showcase. <laughs> as you can see, when you lay it on that's the right. table, the camera is actually still. It's like, yeah. wow. <laughs> Miyamoto comes out with the master sword like he always does. Yes. Oh, look. <laughs> oh, Master Sword. That's a wonderful cue to gear us into our second side. Ah, uh, transition. I thought you may like that segue. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So my side quest for this week. Um, so I've personally been getting back into um, game collecting uh, because I, I'm a sucker for physical media. Um, and I saw this uh, insider article written by Kelly McLaughlin talking about... Um, a sealed copy of The Legend of Zelda having been sold for 870,000 US dollars. So I'll let that sink in. Um, a sealed copy of the original Legend of Zelda for the Nintendo Entertainment System sold for nearly a million dollars. Um, it was graded by a, um, a game collector uh, or a game collecting company or collectibles company, I guess you should say, sort of similar to any like um, card collectors out there, like your Beckett or your, um, uh, what's the other one, TCG? It's, maybe it's not worth the scrutiny, but <laughs> it's these companies that take items and they they assign a grade to them based on their condition and how well they've been kept. So this, it's usually a scale of one to 10. Um, and this wasn't even a 10, this was a nine. So it's still very incredible condition. Um, but it just got me thinking about this, these things mean a lot to people. Um, you know, the legend of Zelda is something that you can play on any number of digital systems now or virtual systems, I guess you should say. Um, but people still have this incredible urge to own the physical thing. Um, I, I think for me, um, it is kind of like owning a piece of history, which is why I like it. I also like it, um, and I think you've both heard me rail about this 
off mic, but there are certain games that aren't available um, virtually. We talked about that with the PlayStation Store uh, near debacle that happened a few weeks ago, where I think um, this article kind of led me down a rabbit hole of collectible games. And I realized that I have an original copy of Silent Hill 2, which is not produced anymore. And I think that on the one hand, it's it's uh, pretty valuable, I think in part because you can't play that version of it anymore. It's a very important game to people. And when the HD collection was released, they changed the voice actors. They um, the, the graphical upgrade kind of messed up the atmosphere of the game. And you can't buy, you know, Silent Hill 2 anymore. So Legend of Zelda is kind of in a realm of its own because it's such an important piece of gaming history. But I think about those other games that are just no longer available where I think collecting is kind of this way of preserving games as they were when they were released. Yeah, and it's not only preserving, right? It's also externalizing. It's externalizing a part of you, a part of your own biography, I feel. Correct. Like having a library. Yeah. These books that, that I've collected, you know. Um, yeah, I just, I think about this a lot. It won't be the last time I bring something like this up. I, I do think that physical media for video games, it's different from other physical media um, because you can get pretty much any book that's published online. Um, ditto movies. You know, you can find pretty much any film that you want online, but um, it's just not that easy with certain games. Some of them do kind of feel like artifacts that you can't uh, engage with anymore. I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, just where we're going with games and other collectible media being um, software that the creators can update at will, right? Because, uh, you know, we, we've talked about before how I'm also big into trading card games like Magic the Gathering, right? Um, and I haven't been following this super closely because I, I stay in the physical more in the digital, especially for, for trading card games. But my understanding is they've started to do what a lot of these other companies have where with digital versions of the cards for their, you know, digital version of the game, Magic Arena, they'll actually, um, they're just starting to, I, I don't think they're, um, like doing this in a way that erases the former cards yet, but they're like nerfing overpowered cards and like, like changing the substance of cards in the digital world. Right. And I think we see a lot of that same stuff with games, whether it's a different changed version being released, like silent Hill two with the HD version, um, or just all of the patching and reworking of games that happens after they're released. Right. And, and so to me, yeah, that sense of having a physical copy that is not only like, valuable by virtue of being physical, but also is, you know, what you would expect from a, a book or a piece of media that is created and that's untouched. Own. Yeah, exactly. It's untouched. And it's, it's something that, you know, the creator doesn't have license to change after the fact as much as JK Rowling might wish that to the contrary. Right. Um, and I, I think that's tremendously <laughs> valuable too, especially as we move more and more into not only the digital, but also the, the constantly dynamic digital. Right. And there will come a time when archives, museums, and maybe libraries even will um, will have to ask around and scramble for um, hard physical copies of 
artifacts, cultural artifacts and artistic artifacts they want to maintain because that's something that also happened with arcade machines, right? Where right. arcade machine museums would be like, okay, wait, who, where are the private collectors? You know, we need, we've got some funding, we've got some money, we need to buy these machines and we need to maintain them, fix them and so on because otherwise these games as cultural artifacts that many people have experienced and uh, nostalgic memories of um, will get lost. And I, I suppose that's my... Uh, that's maybe the um, the drum I'm I'm beating here is that I do worry that a library like that won't exist for certain games and that kind of that bums me out. So I've got that golden cartridge as well. Is that is that a valuable thing now? Yeah, you could get a pretty penny for that stuff on. That's uh, hmm. I would I would look it up. Go down that rabbit hole I mentioned. You'll find <laughs> if you look at your library, you'll see some dollar signs popping up. <laughs> mm, Euro signs, rather. Uh, That's right. uh, <laughs> pardon me, pardon me. How very continental. <laughs> okay, number three, Aaron, what have you brought? Oh, just a small little mind worm from the thing that is occupying all of my waking and sleeping time right now. So, um, you know, the regular listeners to the podcast know that uh, I'm, I'm working on something in Returnal. I'm still working on it. It's probably going to be the longest work on a single game that I've ever published. Um, but it's gotten me thinking more about uh, kind of the the meta-analysis of video games, which um, regulars to With a Terrible Fate know we think about a decent amount. But this time around, I'm, I'm reflecting and meditating just on different kinds of analysis that we can have with respect to a game. One of the taglines that I came up with for with a terrible fate um probably a couple of years ago at this point was the idea that the next great meta game uh, in gaming is analyzing their stories and i think there's a lot of truth to that because i think you know people um less so now but there's still just a default setting to like take the stories of games as they're given and and not think about them that much and i think some of the most rewarding ways of experiencing games can be really trying to unravel, okay, what do those stories really mean? How can gameplay actually be part of those stories? And, you know, all the bread and butter of what we do and with a terrible fate. But I think one nuance within there that we don't think about as much is the difference between the analysis of video game stories where you simply have a certain perspective on the game as you're playing it and then you share it with people versus analysis as a more active mode of engagement with the game where you have an idea and in the process of working through that idea you actually discover new things about the game that you hadn't realized before right and i think i think all three of us have done each of those different kinds of analysis. Um, but it's it's been really interesting to me uh, in terms of this um, analysis I'm doing of Returnal because it was it, it's one of those things where I had an initial idea for how to think about the game through this particular psychological lens. But then the more I've sat down to actually figure out all of the different points of comparison and how to construct the theory, it's actually required revisiting and reinterpreting the game in a way that has allowed me to draw new connections between its story and what my experience was such that that actual act has really almost been a kind of metagame for me where I've come to understand the game in a different way. Uh, and so I just, 
it, it's it's the first time I've done that kind of analysis in a while. It's very hard. It's been taking quite a long time, uh, but it's also really gratifying for that reason. And I've, I've enjoyed it. I'm excited to share that work, of course, with with the readers of With a Terrible Fate. But I also wanted to just invite you guys and, and indeed any listeners who analyze or think about games out there. Um, you know, have, have you had any of those kinds of analytical or, or metagaming analyses in the recent past where as you've sat down to interpret a game, you've come to think about it in a different way than you did before? I actually very much have, yes. And I think the term metagame is very apt to describe that phenomenon because, you know, the first phenomenon that you mentioned is that collectively interpreting a game, that's something that happens quite frequently, right? I I think an epitome of that was PT, which was uh, so obscure, so mysterious, and just predestined for uh, for this kind of engagement where people come together, throw theories together. Dark Souls would be another example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. But the second mode of engagement seems to be the one that, uh, that uh, is currently on your mind a little bit more than that first one. Um, and I've actually had that experience very recently because I'm working... I've mentioned this a couple of times before. I'm working on my PhD still. And the thing is, <laughs> one nice thing about working on such a such a, an extensive project like the PH like a PhD project is that I'm analyzing a game like Outlast or The Town of Light, uh, Max Payne 3 and such things. I've been analyzing them for a long time and I come back to them over and over again and I discover uh, additional layers, I discover nuances, I discover that maybe initially I picked, as an example, Outlast I initially picked as an example to show that video games stereo use stereotypes of mentally ill people, that they impl uh, employ stigmata. And that's harmful, right? That was the initial very simplistic approach that I had. And over time I came to understand that Outlast, it does that, it does that, but in no contradiction to it stands the fact that it also engages rather critically with psychiatric discourse, psychiatric history, with the capitalization of the healthcare system, and with the way how we treat bodies as uh, expendable things. And uh, that's, I think that's somewhat similar to what you're experiencing with uh, Returnal, right? You find like another layer and another layer, and that's super rewarding. That's so satisfying. I love that experience. Well, I, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that speaks to me, Aaron, because, uh, like I mentioned earlier when we were talking to, to Max, which I think is also a very relevant conversation in this regard. Right. Um, I think that for me, once I've completed a game, certain games become puzzles after the fact that I try to put together. And that for me is the meta game that I love so much. So, I mean, I did that with that line that Zemnis speaks in Kingdom Hearts 2. That's my last article up on the site. I mean, I'd been mulling that for, what, uh, 15 years, yeah. you know? No kidding. <laughs> and so I'll still be thinking about it. Um, and I think that Max is a great example of that kind of, kind of analysis that you did with Majora's Mask as well, where there's you. I've played Earthbound a hundred times and there's still something that I'm trying to solve or figure out. And I think that, um, that kind of meta analysis, um, it lends itself particularly well to video games because you kind of gamify the analysis and it becomes a second layer or however many layers deep you are. Yeah. I think the gamification of analysis is a great way to put it. It's also part of what frustrates me so much when, um, you know, newcomers who to their credit simply haven't 
thought about this mode of thinking about games that much before, so it's understandable, but they simply write it off, as I know they've written your work off as well in the past, as just like idle speculation. And that's that's just like such a silly misunderstanding to me because you're right. I think I think games like PT, that's a great example of that stuff on like when games are intentionally mysterious or omit a lot of stuff, it's very inviting and it can be really fun to just speculate in the question of posing like, you know, what if, right? Like and and thinking about different ways in which that blank space could be filled in. But that is such that's such a different activity in terms of what analysis means than taking all of the data of the game and trying to adjudicate it and put together a way of understanding it in a way that's illuminating, right? And and I think coming to understand that difference can just open up so many paths to different kind of analysis. I'll tell you what was like, <laughs> what's the iconic moment of that for me that I've experienced in this analysis of Returnal and I hadn't had in a while. And it's just, it's, it's so annoying, but also so great for the work, which is where like you have an idea for a particular way to analyze a game. So you think, oh, you know, maybe, maybe if I apply like this theoretical lens to this game, I can come to understand it in a new way. And you start going through the work of doing that. And, you know, I'm like a third of the way into the analysis. And I realize, oh, I was actually wrong about this particular part of the theoretical application. Yeah, exactly. So I realized like, okay, my first thought (laughs) about how to apply this wasn't totally right. But in realizing that I've actually come to learn like a different way to apply it that is right and more illuminating. And so through that active analysis, I've actually like not only gained a different understanding of the game, but also corrected my own misunderstanding of the game. And that's, that's really cool. And I think like the more we can come as gamers to understand and appreciate that, the more I think we can start to build like a, a truly like what it means for there to be a robust metagame around understanding video game storytelling. And I think that's a really cool opportunity that we have. Yeah, that is basically the way that hermeneutics work, right? Uh, you throw a hypothesis at, a, at some material and then you have to modify and take in knowledge that you have gained uh, by applying your thoughts again and again and modifying them each time. But one thing that I also wanted to mention is because, yeah, I brought up a PT as an, as an example of a game that really lends itself to um, try and assemble um, even the plot, you know, <laughs> just like what's going on. Um, but I also find it super important, maybe in the vein of uh, like British cultural studies, to also look at things that at first glance do not have that kind of intentional um, vagueness, that are not intentionally obscure. I remember that once in my, in my seminar, I spoke about Candy Crush, and I remember that a student was like immediately chuckling because it at first sight might seem absurd to try and reflect on the, I don't know, the social or philosophical implications of Candy Crush. But then when you start, for someone who hasn't studied it, right, it, it can seem weird at first. But then when you start thinking about it and you start analyzing that game, just like you can do with Tetris or with Space Invaders. Space Invaders as a manifestation of the fear of the, the Cold War, right? And of like invasion and so on. It's, like, it's super interesting. You can do so much in analyzing titles such as these that do not, that are not basically games made to be specifically analyzed and deciphered. There, there is um, uh, a YouTuber that I'm a huge fan of, um, goes by the name H Bomber Guy 
on YouTube, and he does a lot of. That sounds like a nice nickname. You, I think you'd like him, Stefan. Aaron, I've shown <laughs> yeah, you a lot of great. his work, um, but he has a he has a series called Serious Game Analysis or Serious Lore Analysis. And at first glance, it seems like it's a parody of things like game theory and these kind of like, you know, analytical theorizing YouTube channels that just kind of idle in their own, you know, thoughts. But as you, as you watch it, you realize what he's actually doing is lending credence to those kinds of analyses where it's like you're talking about stuff on like, it is interesting to think about space invaders in the context of the Cold War. Why should we not do that? right? Why close that door on yourself when, yeah, it seems kind of silly, but maybe you can learn something if you do that, right? So I think that I have my own limits with that kind of analysis, but I do find that closing the door on any kind of thought like that, you're going to find something valuable um, whenever you're gamifying your own analysis. Yeah. The ending of Tetris explained. <laughs> I, w I will tell you, though, in all seriousness and, and exactly in the vein of that, I mean, we could easily do a whole other episode like shaking our fist at the impact of J.J. Abrams on storytelling in video games, because I think especially in like X game explained or like X game story explained on on YouTube. And I've I've been encountering and dodging those videos with regard to Returnal as I've been building this. Like, I think there is a certain strain of modern storytelling. And it's it's not just in video games, but video games are a great example of it where the plots have become sufficiently opaque that the consumers have been led to the misunderstanding that all it is to analyze the story of a given work is to piece together the fact of the matter of what happened in the plot. <laughs> that's like, that's table stakes for a jumping off point for analysis. That is like, that is not the analytical work in my view. So I'm hoping that, you know, the, the work we continue to do and with the terrible fate and Returnal and beyond can help to, to build a more robust metagame. So cheers to that. Cheers to that. And thank you very much for listening, everyone out there. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Feel free to leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts and of course, find all our written content on withaterriblefate.com. If you have any thoughts or questions, then you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com and we'll talk again next week. See you then.